Father, your name is the name that is above every name. It is the name of Jesus that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We have sung about it today, Father, not uh, to just sing words and notes, but to worship you, whether in this room or uh, at home, to not be spectators, but participants. In the great chorus of saints through the ages of every tribe and tongue and race and creed that have praised your name for the salvation that you've given us in Jesus Christ. And I pray that today good news would flow out of every pulpit and every church and every assembly of believers and that people's lives would be changed, that people would be encouraged. We would not forget the lessons that you are teaching us in these moments, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 8, the title of the message is Missing the Point. We're in our Servant King series in the Gospel of Mark, taking big, big chunks of Scripture at a time to go through this book because Mark is writing a fast gospel covering weeks in a verse, months in a verse or two, and uh, we're trying to take the same pace with a little bit of comment. So uh, this one's about missing the point. First year that Ron Dunn was here, uh, we did a noonday Bible conference. This would have been, well, not the first year he was here when I was here. He was here in the 80s, but in 1990, he came and did a Bible conference, and we had noonday sessions in the original auditorium, which became the Fellowship Hall, which is now the atrium. So we had this room with metal chairs that you could get a splinter in in a New York second, and uh, Ron would preach Monday morning, Tuesday, Wednesday. People would come from work and, and be a part of it, and it was, a, it was great. That first year, he did Psalm 37. Psalm 37. Now, we're not going to look at it. I'm just using this for a point of illustration. Ron, every time he went to a church for the first time, he always did Psalm 37 as his noonday series, not because he didn't have other series, but because he wanted to set a tone about trusting in the Lord and delighting in the Lord. And I don't know of any passage of Scripture that Ron studied and dug into more than Psalm 37. And I mean, I was taking notes fast and furious. I still have those notes. I have those notes from uh, when I heard him in Texas, when uh, he came to the church I pastored in Oklahoma. I, I have those notes, and I still look at them. Many of them are written in the margin of my Bible. And he's preaching about trusting in the Lord and delighting in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And on Wednesday at the end, a man in our church, not here anymore, thank God, man in our church walked up to Ron Dunn, the greatest Bible scholar I ever knew personally, and said, you know you missed the point of Psalm 37, don't you? And I was standing there and I looked at Ron. Ron said, well, he said, I, you know, I've been studying this chapter for 20 years. 
And I've studied it in the Hebrew. I've studied it in multiple languages. I, I, I think I, he said, no, you, you missed the point. He said, well, would you give me credit that I got something right? He said, no, you missed the whole point. The arrogance of that man was stunning to me. I was so grateful when he told me he was going to move his membership because he kind of did that to me sometimes. So, you know, you didn't really get everything out of that passage you could have. And I just want to say, well, why didn't God call you to ministry if you know everything? If you know more than the rest of us, why didn't he call? How come you become a Bible scholar? I see you're using your Sunday school quarterly, probably written by a housewife that lives in Nashville, and that's what you're teaching from. Why don't you teach from the Hebrew and Greek? He never got it. I don't think he still gets it. But can I tell you something? That's not unusual. Parents, how many times have you rehearsed something with your children and they don't get it? And how many times have you said over and over and over again, do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. This is what God says. This is what dad says. This is what I say. Do this, don't do that. And just flies over their head. Teachers know this. That's why you have to review and review and review and review and review and review. Why? Because something happens from the time of the last bell to the time of the first bell the next day. We forget. And Jesus is having this problem with the Pharisees and with his disciples that they are missing the point of why he's there, who he is, and what he came to do and what they need to do because of it. The, the problem is not missing the point. The problem is not hearing and not listening and not observing. The, these disciples and Pharisees are just, I mean, we're halfway through the Gospel of Mark and we're still dealing with the same stuff. And now we're in the, you know, the latter part of the earthly ministry of Jesus. The feeding of the 5,000 has taken place in Mark 6. The feeding of the 4,000 is here in Mark 8. There's a difference. There's seven loaves in one and five loaves in the other. But here's the distinction. It's the context. One, the feeding of the 5,000 plus women and children probably happened around the time of the Sermon on the Mount, around what is known as the Mount of Beatitudes. This happened in the Decapolis. This happened in, in the Gentile section of the nation. And Jesus has been in this area once before. Remember, a few chapters back, he cast the demons into the pigs and they ran off the cliff into the ocean. Now, as I was studying, as far back as Augustine, in, in it, and in the fifth century, it began to be a dominant thought among Bible teachers and preachers that Jesus included this trip to say to the Gentiles, I am the bread of life that has come down out of heaven for the Jews, but I am also the bread of life that has come down out of heaven for the Gentiles. I have no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. He's revealing himself as the hope of the nations, as the hope of the world. He's the Messiah for the Jews. He's the one of salvation for the Gentiles. He is the one that has come. 
Now we're going to pick up in chapter 8 and verse 1, but I want you to notice something uh, in verse 3. In, in verse 3, it says, Some of them have come from a great distance. By that, write Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 13, for it says the Gentiles were far off. It's the same Greek word, far off and from a great distance. So here he's picking up the narrative from the end of chapter 7. When they were, uh, there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from a great distance. Notice the compassion of Jesus for these masses. He's tired, he's worn out, but notice how compassionate he is for this crowd. And his disciples answered him, where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And he was asking them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks. That, that root word is Eucharist. It doesn't mean just to express gratitude, but to express praise. And broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve them. And they served them to the people. They also had a few small fish and after he had blessed them, he ordered those to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied. And they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over the broken pieces. About 4,000 were there, and he sent them away. And immediately he entered the boat with his disciples. Now, here's what's going on with the disciples. After all that they have seen, and after all that they have heard, they're still asking the same questions. I mean, they are just weeks, maybe months at the most, removed from the feeding of the 5,000. Not one of them said, you know, we were in this situation not long ago. And, and we found a boy with some loaves and fish, and Jesus multiplied them and fed everybody, and there were baskets left over. Not one of them said, I wonder if he could do that again. Not one of them. They made the same response to the second impossible situation that they had made to the first one. We got nothing. We, we don't have enough. We need to send these people away. We're tired. They're tired. Everybody's tired. Let's just all go home. We, we don't have a thing. They had not learned. They were still missing the point. They should have learned from the miracles that they had seen, from the wedding feast at Cana, the miracles in John, the miracles in the other Gospels that parallel this time in the life of Christ. They should have learned and said, no problems, Jesus. We know what you can do. Not a problem for our Lord. Not a problem for this carpenter. Not, no, listen, he's calmed storms, he's walked on water, he's fed people, he's healed people, no problem. But what are they doing? What do you want us to do, Jesus? 
We don't have any answers to this. They missed the point. So point number one is don't miss the point. Don't miss the point. When God does something, take note of it and don't let it just fly over your head. Jesus is showing incredible patience and long-suffering, but you have to imagine Jesus never sinned, but you've got to imagine his frustration at having to say and do things over and over and over again, not for the masses, but so that his intimate circle of disciples would get it. In a deeper look, I think Jesus was wondering, when will you guys get it? How much longer? He's about to start heading toward the cross. He knows that the gate of opportunity is about to close. How much longer do I have to be with you before you fully understand who I am and what I've come to do and that nothing is impossible with me? How many signs do you need to see? How many events do you need to part, be a part of before you retain it? If we're not careful, we'll be just like them. And, and before we get too critical, isn't it in our nature to forget what God wants us to remember? I mean, that's in our nature. You, you know, I, I've, I've been in this a long time. I've been in ministry a long time. And I can tell you, I have watched people through the years in youth ministry as an associate pastor and as a pastor. I have watched people, and God has done a phenomenal work in their lives. And three months later, they act like God's never even done anything. I've watched it coming out of youth camps. I mean, somebody comes out of youth camp, and they're ready to charge hell with a water pistol. And the first time somebody invites them out to live a compromised life on a Friday night, they're all in. Like, wait, what happened between July and August? Did you forget the promises that you made? Did you forget the sins that you laid at the altar? Did you forget the message? You know, I, I remember Bill Stafford saying over and over again, I don't want to ever forget and I don't, and you and I shouldn't, what God has done. But if we fail to remember, we will forget, and we will repeat the same mistakes over and over and over again. So there are four truths that you need to remember in this first point. Number one, begin with what you have. Begin with what you have. What's in your hand? It's what God asked Moses. Begin with what you have. Abraham, begin with what you have. What did Abraham have? God had given him a promise and told him that the promise was bigger than all the stars in the sky. Begin with what you have. What gift do you have? What talent do you have? What resources do you have? Make them available to Jesus. What, God's not asking you to do something that somebody else can do. He's asking you to do what he put you here to do. Your life. Your witness, your testimony, your gifts, your talents, your resources. How many loaves do you have? Now, this is why I know there weren't any Baptists in this chapter. Because if there had been Baptists, when Jesus said, how many loaves do you have? One of them would have said, I don't know, we ought to pray about it. Let's, let's just pray about it. Let's pray right now. Lord, show us how many loaves we have. 
They knew how many loaves they had. Jesus wanted them to act on it. I, I remember Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus, which is found in John's gospel. And he's there four days, he stinks, and Jesus says, roll the stone away. Now, the thing I love about that illustration is not only that Jesus reveals himself as the resurrection and the life, but Jesus shows us in that what he will do and what he won't do. Like the wedding feast at Cana. He changed the water into wine, but he wasn't the one that filled the buckets. The raising of Lazarus. He didn't go move the stone. I mean, he could have, with a wave of a hand, sent an angel down and just moved the stone out of the way. Here's what Jesus was trying to teach them and us. I'm the resurrection, but I'm not your construction crew. you got to do what you're supposed to do, and I'll do what I only can do. So you have to begin with what you have. Secondly, God's supply will always meet the need. God's supply will always meet the need. Have you ever noticed that God is never out of stock? Where was God when we all needed hand sanitizers? God is never out of stock. There's never a back order. There's never a failed delivery. He took seven loaves and broke them. The Greek indicates he kept on breaking them. You see, the call is met by heaven's resources. Whatever God asks us to do, he knows his resources, he knows our resources, and we are to partner with him or we miss an opportunity or we miss the point. You see, we need to reach the soul and we need to reach the stomach. It's not just about witnessing so that lives are changed. It's about meeting people at the point of their need. And providing for people at the point of their need. That's why serving is considered the greatest thing we can ever do. You want to show your love for God? Serve people. God's supply will always meet the need. God never says, man, we're on back order until 2024 on that one. Nope. It's not the way it works. Thirdly, physical miracles reveal spiritual truth. Verses 14 through 17, they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. Now, in this moment, the Lord is not going to waste time and he's not going to waste experiences. There's a lesson he wants them to learn, and this is it. God has called us to join him in something bigger than all of us combined. God has called us to join him in something that is bigger than all of us combined. It's bigger than Baptists. It's bigger than Methodists. It's bigger than Charismatics. It's bigger than white people or African-American or Asians or Native Americans. It's bigger than all of us combined because it's kingdom business. It's not about building our kingdom it's about building his kingdom. And his kingdom is bigger than all of us combined. We are to be in the spread of the gospel for the expansion of the kingdom. I find it interesting when you read the gospels that two times Jesus marvels at great faith. And both times 
It is with the Gentiles, not with the Pharisees, not with the Sadducees, not with the Jewish people. It's with the Gentiles. You see, great faith believes God and takes him at his word. The very fact that Jesus presented this to the disciples and said, what do we got? Meant he planned to do something. I mean, just read between the lines and, and use your sanctified imagination. He was intending to do something in this moment with these people. And it went right over the head of the disciples. You see, there are no isolated incidences with God. There's nothing that ever catches God by surprise. There's no time ever ever when Jesus turns to the Father in heaven and goes, did, did you know that? I, I didn't know that. COVID has not caught him by surprise. The strife in our nation has not caught him by surprise. He is sovereign and he sees and he knows, but what he's looking for is God's people who know how to use his resources and their resources in the moment of a need or a crisis. It's interesting to me the number of times that God was trying to teach the disciples lessons either with bread or boats. Now, just substitute anything else for bread or boats. What is in your hand that God wants to use for his glory. What gift do you have? What talent do you have? What opportunities have you and I been given that God wants to use for his glory? Uh, again, I, I've been doing this a long time. And I've, I've watched people through the years and I, I see people that were in my youth group on Facebook sometimes and, and I just wonder, did they ever get out of eighth grade? Are they still living with their mama in eighth grade? Have they ever grown up? You see, you can be immature all your life. And you know what immaturity is? Immaturity is the, the lack of applying what God has said and done to your life and building on it. When I don't apply to my life what God has said and done, I will be stuck spiritually. It will be like my feet are in cement. I cannot move until I start to act on what I should have remembered. The disciples forgot the bread. Jesus is operating in a totally different dimension. Uh, they, they are looking at this inescapable multitude, and the disciples are focused on the inadequate resources. You see, we need to mark the moments when God speaks and God works. And we don't need to forget them. Number four, Jesus is all sufficient. Jesus is all sufficient. The crowd was fed. There were leftovers. 
There's nobody back working in the kitchen going, can we take that chicken nugget and slice it four ways and put it out there to look like we've got more than we got? There was food left over. God is abundant in his resources. He's promised to provide every need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And when I begin to doubt God's sufficiency, I lose perspective, I forget, and I miss the point of what God was trying to teach me. Remember the warning of Jesus about the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches? Here are seven loaves. Seven's the number of completion and fullness. Seven always implies the manifestation of God. Second point, don't explain away what God is doing. Don't explain away what God is doing. There's some things you just can't explain. You just have to take by faith. I can't explain how Jesus did this. I know he did it. You know why I know he did it? Because the disciples saw it because they wrote it down, and because nobody ever wrote a book or a letter at the time of Christ or after the time of Christ and say, you know, those disciples made up all those stories of those miracles. They really didn't happen. It's all a fairy tale. Verse 11, the Pharisees, here they come again. The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him sighing deeply in his spirit. He said, why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. So after this miracle, they sailed back, the Pharisees to the area of Magdala, and here the Pharisees on the side going, the minute he hits this shore, we're after him. We're going to get him. Can't get away from us. Can't get away from us. We're going to snatch him this time. We're going to ask him to do something, and then when he can't do it, we're going to trap him and tell him he's not really who he says he is. By the way, faith doesn't ask for signs. Faith takes God at his word. I hear people sometimes saying, you know, I'm going to lay out a fleece. The only time a fleece was ever laid out in the Bible was because of a lack of faith, not because of great faith. A fleece means I just can't take God at his word. I just can't take God at his word. I can't stand on the promises of Christ my King. And so I I want a sign. I want a fleece. The Pharisees wanted this Sign And Jesus had already given irrefutable evidence. He had transformed lives. He had healed the sick. He, he had made the blind see. He had rescued the hopeless. And the motive for the Pharisees were they're trying to trap him. This little word, they came out in verse 11, implies they'd been standing around, talking among themselves, waiting for an opportunity to trap him. They wanted some irrefutable evidence from Jesus that he had God's authority on his life. That word sign means something that gives a true indication of something else, a visible confirmation that a prophet is really from God, a physical manifestation of God's glory. And he had already done countless signs. Then look at what Jesus does. 
sighing deeply in his spirit. That's a strong word in the original language. It means to sigh from the bottom of the chest. I mean, it's like, ugh. Give us a sign. Ugh. John Phillips says, it was likely in this moment that the Lord heard the voice of Satan. Why? Because Satan, at the Mount of Temptation, had said to Jesus, give me some signs, turn the stones into bread, jump off this cliff, the angels will save you, give me a sign. You know what the devil was doing with Jesus at the beginning of his ministry? Asking him for signs. You know what Jesus did? He answered with the scripture. We don't need more signs as much as we need more obedience to scripture, to what God's word says. They knew the first five books. The creator of the universe stood before them. They knew the prophecies concerning Messiah, and they missed the point. And can I tell you, there'll be people in your life, they're going to be like these Pharisees. They're like old enemies, like the devil. They never leave. They're always looking for a sign. Jesus said, here's the sign, star over Bethlehem. Here's the sign, 12 years old, I'm confounding the religious authorities in the temple. Here's a sign, water into wine. Here's a sign, forgiveness of sin. Here's a sign, the lame walk, the blind see. Here's the sign. They would have a sign that would come that they would still ignore. When Jesus was on the cross and the world went dark and people came out of the graves and started walking around the city according to the Gospel of Matthew, they still wouldn't repent. Imagine their surprise when having been such incredibly gifted people in the knowledge of the Old Testament that they would get to heaven and hear, depart from me, I never knew you. No sign will be given. It's an intense response. Matthew 16, a wicked and adulterous generation looks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. That's a reference to the resurrection. Three days in the belly of the fish, three days in the tomb, I'm out, I'm raised. That's the only sign you're going to get. If you reject that sign, there's no more sign to come. Lastly, don't make me repeat this. Verse 14. Well, let's pick up in verse 16 because of time. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread, and Jesus was aware of this, said to them, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see? Now that word see is important because it means to perceive by the mind and observe by reflection. To perceive by the mind and observe by reflection. In other words, haven't you, after all you've seen and reflected on and after all you've heard, haven't you gotten it or understand? The word understand there means to bring separated things together and assemble data 
to arrive at a conclusion. Can't, can't you see? Don't you understand? All you've seen, haven't you brought all this data together and come to the conclusion that I am sufficient for anything? That I am who I say I am? Do you have a hardened heart? Verse 18, having ears, do you not see? And ha eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves of the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? And they said to him, can you just imagine this? I mean, Jesus is standing there. Okay, guys, we're talking about seeing. We're talking about understanding. We're talking about putting all this data together, uh, feeding 5,000. How many baskets? Tell him there were 12. Uh, 12. 12. Good. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, this had just happened. How many large baskets full of broken pieces did, I, did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? He talks to them about the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. In, in the Bible, leaven always pictures evil. No leaven was allowed in their offerings in the book of Exodus. It's a picture of false doctrine in Galatians chapter 5. It's a picture of hypocrisy. He's talking about leaven, and they're thinking about lunch. The leaven of the Pharisees was religion without righteousness. It was rules without relationship. The leaven of Herod was to try to court politicians to gain favor. We've still got both of those examples of leaven in our world today. The issue is not that Jesus could. The issue is that as a result of his abilities, they still failed to see and they still failed to hear. Their problem was our problem, familiarity. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah, I remember. I, I just forgot. Yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, I remember that. I I, I just forgot about that. Let me give you two thoughts about remembering. We don't remember the past to try to recapture it or reproduce it. We don't remember the past to try to recapture it or reproduce it. There's been only one Pentecost. There's one resurrection. We don't remember it to try to recapture it or reproduce it. Secondly, we remember the past as an encouragement that he is sufficient in the present and the future. We remember the past as an encouragement that he is sufficient in the present and the future. So guess what? We learn by review. Verse 21, do you not yet understand? This is not a continuation of his rebuke as much as it is an appeal to finally get the point. Do you not see that I am the answer to everything you are looking for. Do you not understand? Do you not see that I'm the fulfillment of all the prophecies, that I'm the answer to the needs of the world? Do you not see that only Jesus can satisfy your soul? Do you not see that God didn't just call us to receive information? God called us to act on the information that we've received and to share it with other people. Father, I ask you in the name of Jesus that
we will remember and not forget that we won't miss the point that you're driving home to your disciples 2,000 years ago and driving home to us today that you are sufficient, you're the living water, you're the bread of life, you're the great I am. You're the fulfillment of all prophecy, you're the hope of the world, you're the savior of sinners, you're the hope for the hopeless. God, may we not miss the point today. May we receive and act on what you say in your word, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.